0: Hello and welcome to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Rest This episode is brought to you in part by Independent Pharmacy Alliance. IPA is a trade association and buying group representing 3700 plus independent pharmacies, leveraging buying power to help pharmacies access pharmaceuticals at the best prices. IPA now offers a comprehensive third-party help desk, legislative advocacy, and continuing education free of charge to members. Learn more today at ipagroup.org. And in this episode of the IPA podcast, I have the pleasure of speaking with David Balto. David has practiced antitrust law for over 30 years in the antitrust division, Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, and in private practice. David's also represented pharmacy associations as well as pharmacies and And he has held several senior level positions at the Federal Trade Commission, which has been in the news recently. Uh, David, thank you for coming on the IPA podcast. It's a real pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Anthony. I'm so glad to be here.
0: David, can you speak a bit about your professional background, type of work you've done at the Department of Justice at the Federal Trade Commission, and about your representation of pharmacy associations and pharmacies?
1: Thanks so very much, Anthony, and it's a real privilege to be able to speak to you. You know, I know as an antitrust enforcer how crucial it is for consumers to have ready access to healthcare providers, and no healthcare provider is more accessible than his or her community pharmacy, and that's why... I've always found it a tremendous privilege to be able to represent community pharmacies in the significant challenges that they face. At the FTC, I was the attorney advisor to the chairman and the head of the policy division. And the policy division basically sets the enforcement priorities. You know, Anthony, when I started, we asked the healthcare shop, what do you do on the pharmaceutical area? And they came back to us tremendously enthusiastically. And they said, oh, we do tons of cases (laughs) And they showed us all these cases where they prosecuted pharmacies for trying to negotiate with managed care. And we said to them, you might look at where the pharmacy dollar really goes to, and you might go and try to go after pharmaceutical manufacturers instead of pharmacies. So we (laughs) sort of turned around the paradigm for the enforcers at the FTC we also got them to look critically at this new animal that was being created, pharmacy benefit managers, and brought some cases against PBMs back then in the 1990s. In the past two decades of being in private practice, I've represented dozens of community pharmacies and specialty pharmacies and practically all the major pharmacy organizations and groups like IPA. It's a real privilege to do that because it's an uphill battle. The firms that we have to deal with have tremendous market power know how to manipulate the legal system, but we strive to do the best we can. And so I'm really glad to be able to speak to you today.
0: David, you mentioned something to me. I think it's really important for pharmacy owners and people who are just generally interested in this issue to know. This is really interesting. I've never heard this before, but you're a reliable source. You worked at the FTC. How does the FTC, how have they looked at pharmacies? What has been their impression of pharmacies?
1: You know, the problem with the FTC is, first of all, you all know how wonderful the rarefied atmosphere of Washington is. (laughs) Washington's a place where economic theory reigns supreme. People look theoretically at things and they don't have to deal with a lot of the real world market forces you have to deal with. And the other thing you should know about Washington, D.C. is that we have phenomenal choices in pharmacies so long as those pharmacies are named CVS. CVS dominates the market. And so that's what everybody thinks is a pharmacy. There are very few community pharmacies. In fact, one of the reasons why the rollout of the vaccine was very hard in poor inner city neighborhoods in DC was because those were pharmacy deserts. Anyway, a problem here is that the FTC looks at what a pharmacy does and it narrowly defines it. A pharmacy is some entity that dispenses drugs and they treat them all the same and they totally focus on price. So they don't see a difference between a community pharmacy or a chain pharmacy or a mail-order pharmacy. They just look at what the dispensing fee is, and they really don't account for the broad range of services that a community pharmacy receives. Now, there is a significant effort overall in the Biden administration to go beyond the limited notion of antitrust, the limited competitive concerns that have been raised in the past, and specifically look at diminution of service, losses of service as being an antitrust concern. So hopefully this will be a more receptive environment for community pharmacies to raise concerns.
0: That's really interesting, David. So the thinking at the FTC, or I guess in the culture of the FTC for years, they've been looking at pharmacies as vending machines instead of healthcare providers. But now from what you're saying is the Biden administration is starting to change some of the thinking on that by looking into what type of healthcare services pharmacies are providing. Do you think that's happened because of the COVID pandemic, that some of that bring out the capabilities of pharmacists and pharmacies to the folks in the
1: uh, administration? I think there are a couple things at issue here. First of all, they've seen the real-world reality of how essential community pharmacies are, especially in rural and underserved inner-city neighborhoods. Second, there's a much greater small business concern by the Biden administration. You know, under past administrations, it may just have been, what is the lowest cost distributor of a good? Here, there's much more concern about keeping small businesses alive. So not to get too technical here, and I hope nobody falls asleep, but buyer who has excessive power is called a monopsonist, not a monopolist, a monopsonist. And there's, Significant concern in the Biden administration, um, and this is different than past administrations, about firms that have excessive buying power, Mm -hmm. such as PBMs, which of course we know dominate the market. So it's those two concerns more attention to small business, the recognition in the real world of the significant services that pharmacies provide and the greater healthcare concerns.
0: Do you think that that change in thinking with this administration is some of the reason why the federal government recently approved a rule that's going to require that all of these pharmacy concessions, manufacturer concessions known as rebates, have to be passed along to the patient or the Medicare Part D
1: beneficiary in the form of savings? That's something that absolutely should be done, and I think that's also a concern. And basically, over the past 10 years, the PBMs have now seen how rebates not only can be a profit center, but a rampant profit center, as we've seen their profits double to over $24 billion a year. Let's pause for a second at that figure. PBMs don't create any new products. PBMs don't manufacture any drugs. PBMs don't go at risk. PBMs barely provide any services except through their mail order and specialty pharmacy operations. Yet, because of the failure in the market, because the market doesn't work, they're able to exploit the rebate system, double the amount of rebates, and pocket a huge portion of that amount of money. Basically, consumers are paying that $24 billion. In higher prices for drugs.
0: And is part of that problem what the FTC has done? They've allowed these mega companies to merge with each other, thereby reducing the amount of competition in the pharmacy benefit manager space, allowing basically
1: three companies to control the entire market. Yes, absolutely. Now look, you folks know better than I what competition is because you compete in the marketplace every day. And there are three elements you need for a market to be competitive. First, from a consumer's perspective, you need choices. And you know you don't have choices. Let me just pause for a second. There's this big debate that people in Washington may have about market shares and you hire economists and calculate them, but you know yourself that PBMs have market power Because when they stick that 60-page contract in front of you and say, sign here, you don't have a choice. If you don't have the ability to say no and that no make a difference, that means that firm has market power and is a monopolist. That's a crucial point. It doesn't matter their market share. So these firms are monopolists. Second, you need transparency. You need to know what the value of a deal is. Well, PBMs hate transparency. They know in the darkness that's the best environment to reap monopoly profits. And There's no better example of that than they're preventing you from telling consumers what the lowest cost alternatives are. Third, when you have a firm act as an agent to somebody else, represent someone else's interest, you've got to make sure there aren't conflicts of interest. Well, you know much better than I, and much better than any PhD economist about the PBM conflicts of interest. PBMs have their own mail order operations, or their own pharmacies in the case of CVS Caremark, or their own specialty pharmacies. Let me ask you a question. How do the hens do when the fox guards the hen house? Right. It's a pretty tough life for them. Right. So all those things the PBMs do to you in terms of reducing your reimbursement below cost charging you excessive fees after you've dispensed drugs or engaging in egregious audits. Do they do that with their own pharmacies? Well, of course not. Right. And so with those kind of conflicts of interest, again, a great environment for them to exploit consumers and secure monopoly products.
0: I think that's the key word here, exploit. They are exploiting consumers. They are exploiting small independent pharmacies for their own profit with really no strings attached. And unfortunately, we've seen the FTC over the years just allow these companies to keep merging with each other, have all these conflicts of interest. If you have a a large pharmacy chain owning an insurance company and owning a pharmacy benefit manager, there's definitely some conflict of interest there that's going to hurt consumers. And I guess for the longest time, the FTC has not been looking in the right places. But recently, the FTC held a vote to try to do a PBM investigation. Now, just to let some of the people who are not aware, who are listening, know that vote failed because there was a two to two vote. It was a deadlock. But now a fifth commissioner of the FTC was appointed and it looks like they're going to do another vote to investigate this monopolistic system that is increasing drug prices in the United States. Could you give us an inside look to what happened during that vote and what's the expectation now that we have a fifth commissioner on the FTC?
1: Sure. And just to provide a little more clarification, and I know more about what goes on in the kitchen. By the way, since I know what goes on in the kitchen, do not eat the food at all costs. (laughs) But uh, part of the problem here was the staff, there was uncertainty about the scope of the study. Let me just step back a second. So Congress, when it created the FTC in 1914, said, we want an entity that can conduct studies and then advise Congress. So, for example, the creation of the SEC, or the Public Utility Holding Company Act, came about because of FTC studies. It has that power, and it's a wonderful power to have, because they get all the documents and can conduct depositions. They were proposing doing one of these studies. And part of the problem was that the scope of the study changed just before the commission meeting, And that upset the Republican commissioners, so they didn't go along with it. But I think everybody, including the Republicans, realized there's a need for a study here. Now, there's a problem. Again, I have to caution. I'm going to start talking antitrust. So don't fall asleep while I'm talking.
0: (laughs) Well, David, explain to the listeners what antitrust is. In the simplest terms,
1: what is that? Oh, antitrust law are the laws that protect the competitive process, that prevent Firms from engaging in exclusionary conduct or collusive conduct. What I was going to say is part of the debate that goes on in the FTC is who's the customer. Now, you know who the customer is because he or she comes to your counter every day. Um, Part of the problem with the FTC is the FTC thinks the customer is the employer or the insurance company. Mm -hmm. So policies which may be really bad for the consumer, for example, mandatory mail order, the FTC may think is perfectly kosher because the employers may like it. And so part of the debate that's currently going on in the FTC between the Republicans and the Democrats is who's the consumer. And the Democrats want to make it that human being who steps up to your counter.
0: So so that's really interesting, David. Just like with everything in public policy, words matter. And the meaning of words matter. What's interesting about this, in terms of the conversation about drug pricing, is that there is a debate at the FTC of who is actually the consumer, whether it's these large companies, employers, or the average everyday person who's out there purchasing their prescription drug at a pharmacy.
1: Yeah, Anthony, let me make an important point here. Part of the things that enforcers and policymakers need to think of is who speaks for the consumer. So from the FTC's perspective, the employer speaks for the consumer, but the employer's mm-hmm. interests aren't always coincident with the consumer's interest. Mm-hmm. But do you know in this environment, do you know who speaks for the consumer? Who's that? The community pharmacist. Right. It's the community pharmacist who gets on the phone with the PBM and says, can you cover? Why can't you cover? Is there something else we can do? It's the community pharmacist who serves as the point person and deals with the insurance company and the doctor. That's one of the things that really gets lost as these nice people in Washington try to figure out what the right policies are. I mean, there isn't another environment like this. Again, these aren't vending machines. It's not just a question of dispensing because they play this vital role of advocating on behalf of the consumer.
0: And do you think that the Federal Trade Commission, because they're taking comments till May 25th on PBM practices, do you think they're going to hold another vote to investigate these companies and maybe do the right thing?
1: Yes, that is what they will do. They will take the comments. Unfortunately, this is going to sideline things for probably a couple months, but then they'll have another commission meeting. And hopefully this time they'll get something voted out uh, unanimously.
0: Well, that is encouraging to hear, David. And I want to segue because right after that FTC news, there was a US Senate committee that held a panel or a hearing that you participated in about pharmacy benefit managers and their practices. I thought your testimony was really well done. But what also amazed me was how far the messages come in terms of pharmacy benefit manager practices and how they're taking advantage of consumers when it comes to drug pricing. Because, and what was amazing is that we have lots of problems in Washington, D.C. But there was a cohesiveness amongst the legislators, the U.S. senators on that panel, where both the Republicans and the Democrats were saying, yeah, the PBMs are a problem. They are making the consumer pay, and there are issues with their various practices. Could you tell us a bit about that committee hearing, your testimony, and maybe some interesting information about it that a lot of people aren't aware of?
1: Yeah, just to give you some background here, one of the real innovations in enforcement and policymaking of the Trump administration is they said, we're not going to look just at what pharmaceutical manufacturers are doing. We're going to look at the entire pharmaceutical distribution system because, indeed, Like half the cost goes through the distribution system. And then although there are reasons for giving pharmaceutical manufacturers monopolies to get back the money from inventing new drugs, we want competitive markets through the rest of the distribution system. And especially in the area of PBMs, they identified a bottleneck. And the Council of Economic Advisors said that They did a study and they found that PBMs had outsized market power, which led them to secure excessive profits. In Republican terms, Republicans cannot use the term screw consumers. That's not part of their lexicon. So they said excessive profits instead. Anyway, so the first time I met with the Office of Management and Budget during the Trump administration about PBM abuse, it was the strangest meeting for me. Um, because everybody on the other side of the table was saying yes. And I hadn't experienced that before in the prior administration. So um, I was pretty blown away. So the Trump administration's efforts and looking at PBM rebates and seeing how that system was deeply flawed and costing consumers billions of dollars and higher drug prices that the rebates were basically being pocketed is something that's really resonated with both Republicans and Democrats, but a lot for Republicans. And so I think that's why you see part of the bipartisan movement that that something needs to be done on PBMs. The other thing is never underestimate your own power. So when you listen to people like Senator Blackburn raise concerns, it's because of the strong Community Pharmacy Association in Tennessee, which has made it crystal clear to her about the egregious practices of PBMs. The final thing to keep in mind is never underestimate how cruel and evil PBMs are. And you know that much better than we do. So I think the recent practices with DIR fees, which have just gone beyond the pale, I'm just grotesquely excessive and simply doesn't make any sense to anyone. I think it's just driving people in Congress that something needs to be done. So never underestimate your own ability by dealing directly with a congressional office and their staff describing your real-world situation of your being able to affect policy.
0: I think what you're saying, David, is so important because a lot of times pharmacists and pharmacy owners, they say, what am I going to do? I mean, I can't do anything about this, but they should be involved. They should contact the FTC and tell them their stories. They should contact their congressional representatives and state representatives and explain to them what's going on with drug pricing, their patients and their own businesses. Because I think the fruit of everyone's labors, including yours and all the work that you've done over the years, it shows when you testified in front of these U.S. senators, how far the education of the prescription drug supply chain has come. It's amazing how the legislators have gone from maybe a decade ago of having a blank stare on their face when discussing PBMs to now talking about how, you know what, they really are a main influence in drug pricing.
1: Yes, absolutely. And the key thing is everybody goes and says, these are really complex but we can make it very simple and straightforward. Talk about the the lack of transparency and you say pharmacists can't tell a consumer it's better to buy it with cash. There's no pro-consumer reason for that policy. You take the DIR fees and you explain how totally insane it is to extrapolate those fees to other drugs, that these are just, schemes that in any other context would have the cops at the door. You know, your advocacy really can make a big difference.
0: Absolutely. David, I have to ask you a really important question, the 6B study. This is a study that's going to be conducted by the FTC. What can we expect from
1: that study? Wow, that's a really terrific question. First, realize that the reason Congress gave them that power was for them to advise Congress. So we've seen in the past with the creation of the SEC or the Public Utility Company Holdings Act or the Packers and Stockyards Act that the FTC study leads them to write a report to Congress and ultimately leads Congress to regulate in the end in that area. So that's the first thing advising Congress and suggesting potential legislation or regulation. And since PBMs exist in basically a regulatory Wild West, they're the one health entity that isn't regulated at all. That's very vital. Second, the FTC has its own enforcement powers. So during the course of this study, if it identifies practices that it thinks are anti-competitive or unfair methods of competition, it can bring enforcement actions against those cases. So for example, The FTC might consider whether or not DIR fees are an unfair method of competition when imposed by a competitor, especially when the competitor doesn't use them with their own entities, or it can consider whether or not past acquisitions should not have been approved and perhaps they should go in now and try to get those companies broken up in some respect. Or they could look at whether or not restrictive policies that basically force subscribers To use the pbm's own pharmacies rather than choosing their own independent pharmacies whether those things are anti-competitive the third area is potential regulation the ftc has the power to regulate so you could see a trade practice rule implemented by the ftc that says when a pbm owns a pharmacy it cannot discriminate in favor of its own pharmacy it cannot offer limited networks or if it offers limited networks the limited networks have to provide ready access for consumers to turn to alternatives outside the network. So those are the three areas report to Congress, potential enforcement actions, and then potential regulation.
0: So a report slash study like this could be a game changer for consumers, for small independent pharmacies, and just for the public in general. How long would it take for a report like this to be conducted and then to get to that point where the FTC decides there's really something we should be doing about this?
1: Well, they can do those things coincident with each other. So, for example, if you found in the course of the study that companies knew that DAR fees were probably an unfair trade practice, you probably could bring an enforcement action against them. You wouldn't wait till the study was done. But thinking more long term, that is going to take at least a year.
0: At least a year. And it's interesting going back to how the importance of language, them defining insurance company as the consumer and not the individual who's, I guess, the beneficiary of that uh, insurance company. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. David, I watched this U.S. Senate hearing this morning just out of curiosity. It had to do with UFOs. And I was thinking, while I was watching it, well, this is really entertaining, but is anyone going to get anything out of this hearing? Is the consumer going to get anything out of this hearing? Are patients going to get anything out of this hearing? How much money and time and effort are staff and these government officials who are testifying from the Pentagon, what is this going to do for the general public? And what amazed me is that in popular culture, you ask someone. What is a UFO? They'll be able to tell you right away. But if you ask them, what is a PBM, which really impacts everyone's life because it deals with serious illnesses, prescription drugs that they're taking, the cost of those prescription drugs, most people won't be able to tell you what that is. And I was heartened to see that U.S. Senate committee hearing last week where the senators were taking up this issue. But It's very hard to break through on that message. How have you been able to, I guess, you know, fight through the clutter of things of this nature where, you know, the the U.S. Senate will put up a hearing on UFOs, which really isn't impacting anyone, but you have to break through the noise and teach people about PBMs, which sounds complicated and maybe a little boring. How has
1: that been for you over the years to try to fight through that noise? You find common sense examples to explain what's going on. So, for example, Anthony and I are both unhappy that the Brooklyn Nets didn't make it go farther in the playoffs. For Anthony to deal with his situation, he goes and gets a prescription of some major antidepressant that costs $500. For me... I decide to buy a bigger screen TV for $500. Now, for that to occur, information and money has to be transmitted electronically. When I buy my TV set, Visa gets something like $2.35 on that $500 transaction. When Anthony buys that expensive drug, because of the rebate system that's been concocted by the PBMs and exploited, about $68 goes to the PBM for doing the same thing. And somehow when you come up with examples like that, real-world common sense examples, those work well. But also those real-world examples you deal with. And I know this sounds frustrating. I know this sounds really daunting to think you're going to influence things by going and putting together notes on a single example on how a consumer is screwed about not being able to get a drug because of the PBM policies. But that's the kind of thing that affects the congressional staff people. And I know for a fact that Senator Blackburn, during the hearing, it was because of a specific instance she knows about where the PBM kept a consumer from getting a drug they needed and put them through an egregious step therapy program that created all this pain and uncertainty for them. So you're going and providing those examples for your congressional office does make a difference.
0: All it could take is one real-world story to show them what happened to a real person and the difficulty they had with obtaining their prescription drug and the costs behind that prescription drug to break through. And from what you're saying, anyone can do it. Anyone can get involved and anyone can communicate these stories to their federal
1: representatives. Right. And that's why you have IPA. And, of course, we're always happy to assist in whatever fashion. I mean, and it's crucial that you do this because obviously the employer is not going to do it. The employer is not going to pick up the phone and complain about PBM and the consumers are overwhelmed. So you can be very effective at this.
0: David, you've been talking about this for years, about lowering drug prices. And I just want to thank you for all the great work that you've done and are doing. And uh, thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, I feel privileged to be able to work on this issue and hopefully help community pharmacies. Because no one is as trusted and provides as ready access to vital health care advice for consumers, especially particularly vulnerable consumers as community pharmacies. So I'm pleased to do whatever I can do to help. To learn more
0: about David Balto, go to his website at dcantitrustlaw.com. DC Antitrust Law is one word or call 202. 202- 577-5424. Thanks for listening to the Independent Pharmacy Alliance podcast. This podcast was made possible by the Independent Pharmacy Alliance and the President and CEO, John Giampolo, was produced and edited by Zach Stone with music by Marcus Way. For previous and future episodes, check out ipagroup.org. Thank you very much. Bye for now.